Good morning, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us. I've realised that today is the last time that I'm scheduled to speak before we hand over to James as senior pastor at the end of August. So I thought I ought to be making the most of it. What to talk about then in my last chance? During the week, I was trying to think about what I haven't spoken about these past seven years or so. I haven't talked about harlequins. I haven't talked about why pink is my favourite colour. And I haven't talked about why garlic and raw onions are demonic, as surely they are. And I haven't talked about why my jokes aren't half as bad as everyone seems to think they are. At least they haven't got any worse. I'm getting just as many laughs now as I did before the lockdown. But something deep inside was telling me that, important though all of those are, none of them is particularly suitable for a Sunday sermon, especially when it's my last one. Today's talk needs to be about something that's kind of classic and spiritually important. So what I want to talk about this very last time is this. What is the gospel? Now you may be thinking, is that it? What is the gospel? Everyone knows that already. Tell us something that we don't know. Well, if that's what you're thinking, then please stay with me. Humour me for just this one last time. So let's start with the word gospel. It comes from an old English word, God spell, which is a combination of two separate words. God, meaning good, and spell, meaning news or story. So before the gospel is anything else, it starts with being good news. The gospel is good news. The gospel is a good news story. And that helps explain why we call the first four books in the New Testament the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are the good news stories of Jesus' life and ministry. They're four different perspectives, four different angles on why and how Jesus is good news. So they are Matthew's take on why Jesus is good news, Mark's take on why Jesus is good news, Luke's take on why Jesus is good news, and John's take on why Jesus is good news. So here's the first takeaway for this morning. If the way that we're explaining the gospel to people isn't sounding like good news to them, then we need to be rethinking the way that we're telling it. No one is going to be persuaded by a gospel that sounds like bad news or no news, or irrelevant news. Hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. Now the interesting thing is, and perhaps you've wondered about this yourself, is nowhere in any of the Gospels do we find a definition of the Gospel. There's nowhere that Jesus says the Gospel is this, or the Gospel is that. And so because of that, when Christians are trying to explain the gospel to people, what they end up doing is selecting bits and pieces from different verses and passages in the New Testament and stringing them together and saying, this is the gospel. And if you Google what is the gospel, then you'll see what I mean. 
And in a sense, that's okay, provided, of course, that we're choosing the right bits and pieces and the best bits and pieces. Because the danger is that we reduce the gospel down to something that fails to do justice to all of the ways in which Jesus is good news. That reduces it down only to certain ways in which Jesus is good news. Or we end up with something that might get us good marks in a theology exam, but makes no sense at all to our unchurched friends. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, Mark says this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. But he doesn't then start defining what the gospel is. He doesn't start quoting from Paul in Romans. And that's because the whole of Mark's gospel was the good news about Jesus, just as it was for Matthew and Luke and John. You see, it's not a statement of facts and information about Jesus that's the good news however theologically sound that may be. And it's not the supposed four spiritual laws that are the good news. It's Jesus himself who is the good news. The good news of the gospel is everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus is, then and now. The gospel is all of the ways in which Jesus was good news to the people who experienced him. The ways in which we see Jesus receiving someone, welcoming someone, being kind to someone, loving someone, forgiving someone, and explaining what God is like to someone. That is the gospel. All of that is the good news. Even when we see Jesus challenging people, and especially when he was challenging the religious leaders and the people in power, that is part of the good news as well. Because good news people don't turn a blind eye and stay silent when bad news is hurting people and harming people. It's why we can't ignore social justice and issues like poverty and racism and inequality and injustice and suffering. In James 2, James, the brother of Jesus, who you'd think would know Jesus and his heart and his message pretty well, someone who would know what the gospel is as well as anyone. He says this, Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. We are called to be good news and to embody good news, and to do good news, not just to preach good news. It's both and, not either or. So the reason that it's so important for us to read the Gospels and to know the stories in the Gospels is because the ways in which Jesus was good news to people when they encountered him are the same ways that Jesus will be good news to us when we encounter him because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus will receive us the way he received them. Jesus will welcome us the way he welcomed them. Jesus will say to us the kind of things that he said to them. Jesus will love us and understand us 
and offer forgiveness to us and have a heart of compassion towards us in the same ways that he loved and understood and forgave and had a heart of compassion for them. The ways that Jesus explained what God is like are the same ways that he wants us to understand what God is like. Jesus will be good news in our lives in the same ways that he was good news in their lives. And Jesus will also challenge us the way he challenged them. But you know, once we've experienced and been welcomed by Jesus and loved and understood and forgiven by Jesus, then we will surely welcome being challenged by Jesus as well. Because we will know that it's for our best to help us to become all that he wants us to be. So as we're reading through the Gospels, we should be listening out for the good news in the stories. The way that Jesus was good news for the woman caught in adultery in John 8. The way that Jesus was good news for the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. The way that Jesus was good news for the criminal who was crucified alongside him in Luke 23. The way that the father was good news in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The way that the shepherd was good news in the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew 18. The ways that Jesus was good news for the oppressed and the victims and bad news for the oppressors in stories like the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 and so on. And you know, one of the really interesting things that we see as we read through the Gospels and we look at these stories is how rarely Jesus' good news seems to have had any conditions attached to it. For some reason, he doesn't seem to have been particularly bothered about proving his doctrinal orthodoxy by caveating everything all of the time, which, of course, was one of the reasons that the religious people criticised him. Now, you may say, well, what about the woman caught in adultery? Didn't Jesus say to her, go and sin no more? And that's true, he did. But only after she'd experienced his love and understanding and kindness and compassion. Only after he'd said, I don't condemn you. And after he'd stopped other people condemning her as well. And it's a perfect example of what Paul says in Romans 2.4, that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not repentance that leads to the kindness of God. Christians who start with sin rather than grace are putting the cart before the horse. Another thing that we see in the gospel stories is how unexpectedly Jesus was good news to people. The generosity of the way that he received people, welcomed people, was kind to people, loved people, forgave people, and explained what God was like to people, all of that was breaking all the rules. Or maybe I should say, it was rewriting all the rules. Not because God had changed, but because people's understandings and expectations of what God was like needed to change. From what people at that time thought that gods were always like, to what Jesus was telling them the one true God was really like. And not just telling them, but showing them. 
Colossians 2.9 says that in Jesus, all of the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the exact living image of the invisible, invisible God. Jesus is like what God is like. Jesus is what the good news of God looks like. What God is like, his nature and character, and what's most important to him was at the heart of what Jesus argued about with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees believed in a loving God, but it was always conditional. You need to be doing the right things so you can be loved and accepted and forgiven by God. But Jesus was saying you've got it the wrong way round. Once you understand how much you're already loved and accepted and forgiven by God, you'll want to be doing the right things. So we need to be so careful not to be making the same mistake as the Pharisees and starting everything with sin instead of grace, adding on conditions and caveats to the things that Jesus said, ifs and buts and provided this and provided that. And the parable of the prodigal son is a classic example of that. If that's a picture of how God the Father loves and welcomes and forgives us as prodigal sons, then Jesus left out a lot of vital theological information in how he told the story. So we have no business adding it back in. Yes, of course, Jesus was concerned about people living right and doing what's right. And yes, of course, sin is something that he took seriously, and so should we. But grace comes first. It's funny how the more religious a person is, the more of a problem they seem to have with that, the more they seem to want to start with sin. Okay, so if all of the ways in which Jesus is good news in the Gospels is the Gospel, if all of the ways in which we see Jesus receiving someone, welcoming someone, being kind to someone, loving someone, forgiving someone, and explaining what God is like to someone, if all of those together are the good news, then anything that foreshortens that, anything that reduces it down, anything that stops short of all of that, or understates that, or limits that, is by definition something less than the whole gospel. So we don't want to be doing that. But here's the problem. The four gospels are just over 82,000 words, which is about 20 sermons. So when we want to explain the gospel to people, we can't just say, read the gospels. We need to summarize it in some way. But if we are going to explain in just a few sentences or in just a few ways how Jesus is good news, we have to be very careful which aspects we decide to choose, which aspects that we're going to start with and start from. Because what the Gospels are offering us is a veritable smorgasbord or an all-you-can-eat buffet, depending on which metaphor you prefer of different good news to choose from. 
And of course, we've also got the rest of the Bible and especially the rest of the New Testament to choose from as well. So how should we go about that? Well, one option is we try to do it the theological way. We try to make sure that we're including all the right phrases and all the right elements using all the right verses and all the right words so that it's technically accurate and leaves nothing out. And that's fine. But dare I say, that is not necessarily the most effective way for the people that we're wanting to reach. Because the more theological most of us try to be, the more religious sounding we usually end up. Using words and phrases and ideas that people aren't familiar with. Now, of course, we want to get it right theologically and not be preaching heresies by mistake. But I know myself that it's really, really difficult to translate biblical language and biblical metaphors into ordinary, everyday language and metaphors and to be doing that well. Another option is we can start with what Jesus means for us in our own lives how we have experienced the good news of Jesus personally. And as long as that is a good reflection of the good news of Jesus that we see in the Gospels, then that's a really good approach. You may think that all sounds a bit subjective, but it does seem to be what Paul had in mind when he talked about my Gospel in Romans 2, Romans 16 and 2 Timothy 2. So in that sense, we all have to have our own version of my gospel, of what the good news of Jesus means to me. People actually love real-life stories. They love seeing what someone's truth looks like when it's lived out in that person's life. And they also love seeing what truth looks like when it's lived out in the life of a church, and especially when it's not what they expected. And then a third option, and this is the one that I'd particularly like us to think about this morning, is to start with whatever aspects of the good news of Jesus are going to work best for the person we're speaking to at the time. In other words, we ask the Holy Spirit to show us what bad news looks like in their life so we can explain how Jesus is good news in their bad news which, before anyone gets worried, is not the same as saying that we make up Gospels to order to suit people. It's simply saying that we start where people are at, which seems to me to be what Jesus did. In fact, what any good communicator would do. You see, the problem with the theological approach on its own is that we're in danger of offering Jesus as the answer to questions that people aren't asking. There's no point in us saying that Jesus is the answer to questions that people used to have or that they ought to have. There's no point saying that Jesus is the solution to problems that people don't recognise. If we're going to explain the gospel to people, we have to do it using words and concepts and starting points that people can grasp that makes sense to them in their own life experience. 
Now, years ago, a very common way of presenting the gospel was to try to make people feel guilty about what sinners they were. And it was based on the Western world being a guilt-based society in which people learned Christianity at school and grew up knowing deep down that there was a God who they weren't following as they ought to be. So the goal for evangelists like Billy Graham was trying to get people to see that they were guilty sinners who needed to repent. And this is actually where the Christian idea of revival comes from. The Holy Spirit bringing back to life an awareness of a sense of guilt that was latent inside people. And in years gone by, that worked. But the problem is, in today's world, people don't think like that. We're now in a shame-based culture rather than a guilt-based culture. So when evangelists rely on a guilt-based gospel presentation, when they start from sin and what sinners people are and how deserving of God's wrath they are and how Jesus is the solution to this problem, most people are not going to get it in the way that they used to. Steve Holmes said, if the only gospel we've got solves a problem that nobody feels, then it's no wonder our churches are shrinking. There's a lot of work in first explaining to people that they really ought to be feeling guilty before then solving the problem for them. Helen Mann said, individuals no longer live with a sense of sin and guilt in the way that evangelists would wish them to. Now, whether we are sinners and whether we are guilty before God is not the point that I'm making. Of course we are. And of course the gospel is God's remedy for sin. It's about where we start from. Because it's about winning people. It's not about winning prizes for doctrinal correctness. Evangelicals in particular are almost obsessively concerned about being balanced all the time. But you know, the only time someone is balanced is when they're standing with both feet rooted on the ground. We're only perfectly balanced when we're going nowhere. Now, in case you think that I'm being soft on sin, I am not. I'm actually trying to take sin more seriously. Because one of the problems of typical evangelical explanations of the gospel is that they not only take a reductionist view of the good news, but they take a reductionist view of sin as well. They reduce it down to just a list of the things that I personally have done wrong. Now obviously it includes that, but it's not only that. The problem of sin includes what sin has done to people. The Apostle Paul talks about sin as being like a personal enemy, an enemy power that has invaded our world and damages our lives. An enemy that Jesus defeated on the cross along with death. The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright puts it like this. Sin has a devastatingly wide range of effects. It breaks our relationship with God, one another and the earth. It disturbs our peace. It makes us rebels against God's authority. It makes us guilty in God's court. It makes us dirty in God's presence. It brings shame on ourselves and others. It blights us from the past and already poisons the future. 
it ultimately leads to destruction and death. He says that the problem of sin is so much broader and deeper than just individual sinners needing forgiveness for a personal list of sins committed. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul almost always talks about sin in the singular rather than sins in the plural, as we tend to. For Paul, about 85% of the time, the problem is sin, singular. Sin affects us in so many ways. Sometimes we experience sin as perpetrators. We do sin. And sometimes we experience sin as its victims. We suffer sin in what sin does to us living as we do in a sin-centred world. It's both and. Some of us and some of the people that we meet experience sin more as perpetrators. But some of us and the people we meet experience sin more as victims. So our gospel has to be big enough and sensitive enough to allow for both and to explain how Jesus is good news for both just as he was in the Gospels. On the cross, Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself. He defeated the power of sin in all of the ways that it affects us, not just the one that makes us guilty. At the beginning of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, it says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world just as the scapegoat did in the Old Testament ritual of the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 20 to 24. The cross is the good news solution to the problem of sin in all of the ways that it affects us. The cross brings us forgiveness. The cross brings us healing and cleansing. The cross brings us restored relationship with God and with each other and with ourselves. The cross brings us peace. The cross changes us from enemies of God to friends of God. The cross deals with our guilt and our shame. The cross restores the damage that sin has done. And the cross brings us hope and a future leading to eternal life. The good news of the gospel is an all-you-can-eat buffet. So choose your starter and work your way around the table and make sure that you tuck into all of it over time. Start with the good news of Jesus that your friends and family need the most right now. So let's get reading the Gospels, shall we? Let's listen out in the stories for all of the ways in which Jesus is good news. Because the good news of the Gospel is everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, and everything that Jesus is, then and now. The gospel is all of the ways in which Jesus was good news to the people who experienced him. The ways in which we see Jesus receiving someone, welcoming someone, being kind to someone, loving someone, forgiving someone, and explaining what God is really like to someone. That is the gospel. All of that is the good news. And that, my friends, as Andy Kind would say, 
I have to say that because he's staying with us this weekend. That, my friends, should be my gospel and your gospel. So let's experience it and let's share it.